Good morning, EBF family. My name is Chipper Flanagan. I was a resident at this very church from 2010 to 2012. It is wonderful to be back. You sent me away, though, so it's really your fault. Uh, you sent me away with uh, other people from this church to plant a church in Gainesville, Florida, about a thousand miles south of here where the University of Florida is, if you've never heard of Gainesville. So there is another congregation, uh, because of your faithfulness and your generosity, there's another congregation that is worshiping right now, or actually about to wrap up right now. And I think that should bring you a lot of joy this morning. When I left here, my wife and I had zero kids. Speaking of Father's Day, now we have three kids. We have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old. And we are doing great. We are doing just... Wonderful. Since this is uh, the Bechtel's last Sunday, I need to say uh, something here. I want to say something. Uh, since we're talking about redemption this morning, I'll say something about the, the Bechtel's redemptive impact on us as a family. I love my time at Trinity. I was at uh, Trinity just up the road for graduate school and the fact that even though it was wonderful, it was hard, especially preaching labs, uh, which are some of the most uncomfortable environments you could possibly imagine. It's you preaching your guts out uh, to like four people, uh, one of them being a professor. Uh, you all have that joke where, you know, you felt like if I had to do public speaking, I would use this joke and it would be very funny. So you use that joke and it crashes like a lead balloon. Uh, and then you have a professor that just sort of looks down at his notes and he has a red pen and he just kind of writes something and nobody laughs. Uh, at EBF, at the time, I don't know if you still do this or not, but uh, it seemed like a great idea to me, John Bechtel, before you would preach for the first time here, would make sure that he listened to your sermon first so they knew what was going on. And so it would be you and John Bechtel. At the time we were using an office room, there would be a drum set, uh, maybe one other resident, and that would be it, and you would be preaching. And the thing about John is he was always so encouraging, uh, even if you felt like the whole thing was cratering. He would just look at you and smile, and he would just say, oh, okay, okay. And then I would assume he would call whoever was directing worship that week and just say, it better be really good uh, this Sunday. But the Bechtels loved us very well. I don't want to overstate it, but I mean it very seriously. They are a very large reason why I am standing here at this pulpit this morning, and so I love them. And they will be missed, although I'm glad they will continue to pastor and minister uh, west of here for a while. I chose this passage this morning very specifically for all of you. I know, um, I've, I've, you know, I haven't been here for seven years, but I know especially in the last few years it's been a hard season for many of you individually uh, and then also corporately. So I hope that our time this morning is a major source of encouragement for this church family. The first four chapters of the book of Exodus, since we're jumping into chapter 5, the first four chapters of the book were you to go back and read them, and I hope you will. They help us understand the nature of oppression. They help us understand the unexpected ways that God works as redemption begins, and they help us understand the character of the God who does the redemptive work. He's holy, he's faithful, he's patient. These days the term oppression gets tossed around, in many different contexts. So as we get started, let's make sure we're on the same page when we use that term. Biblically speaking, the root of oppression is ultimately idolatry. It's false worship. And because we all struggle with idolatry, oppression ends up being multi 
directional. Sometimes we effectively oppress ourselves, sometimes we oppress other people, and then sometimes others oppress us. And to make matters even more complex, it's, it's very possible that all of that can be happening simultaneously. Thankfully, God has done and continues to do redemptive work in all of those arenas. The book of Exodus gets at all of them, although the spotlight, of course, is on Israelite redemption out of terrifying slavery in Egypt and toward the land that God has promised them. And it's a really good thing that Exodus chapters 3-4 through give us this very in-depth look at God's character, because this morning, as we see God's redemptive plan for the Israelites kick into gear, we encounter a very uncomfortable reality, some of the stages of God's redemptive work in the world and in us don't seem to be all that redemptive. When God really gets involved for a season, sometimes for a very long season, things actually might get worse. When God gets involved, the redemptive arc might appear to be arcing in the wrong direction. And when this happens, we often experience significant spiritual disorientation, depression, and even doubt. So what do we make of this? How should we process this? How do we keep going in the midst of God's redemptive work when it doesn't seem to be redemptive at all? So this morning, let's wrestle together with these questions by considering two reflections. Two reflections. Number one, reflect, uh, redemption is hard because oppression is deep. Redemption is hard because oppression is deep. And then secondly, redemption is hard because redemption is great. Let's start with the first reflection. Redemption is hard because oppression is deep. If you go back and read chapter 4, you will see that after much wrestling with God, a guy named Moses finally decided to heed God's calling and go to Egypt with his family to confront Pharaoh and tell him to let the Israelites go. And of course, he had his brother Aaron in tow. After reading Exodus chapter 4, it's very natural to think, well, you know, God has clearly called Moses to be Israel's deliverer, and Moses is obediently heading to Egypt to answer the bell. So once he gets there, surely everything will fall neatly into place. But how did things actually go once Moses went to Egypt to carry out this redemptive plan? Answer, terribly. Awful. And here's how terrible it was. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5, when Moses passed along God's message to Pharaoh that he should obey God's voice and let the Israelites go, Pharaoh not only said no, he was wholly uncaring about God and whatever his instructions might be. He couldn't have been more dismissive. I, don't even, I do not even know this Lord. Boy, did that not inspire hope in the eyes of Moses and Haran. Verses 4 through 9. In order to remind the Israelites who the boss in Egypt really is, Pharaoh stopped providing straw for Israelite brickmaking. Then they had to go find straw themselves without decreasing the quantity of the bricks they were producing. And you can see Pharaoh's God complex on full display in verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So in light of the visit from Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh wanted to oppress the Israelites so severely 
that they didn't even have the bandwidth to think about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Drown it out with all the work. Verses 10 through 14, when the brick output inevitably declined because of the new requirement to make bricks without straw, the Egyptian taskmasters beat the Israelite foreman. Verses 15 through 19, the foreman cried out to Pharaoh about their unjust treatment, but once again, Pharaoh didn't care one bit about their plight. And in verses 20 and 21, once it became clear to the foreman that this workload change was going to be permanent, they cried out to Moses and Aaron, saying, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. I'd imagine this conversation probably would have involved a lot of sarcasm. Nice work, guys. Great plan. Now we have an unsustainable workload that's quite literally going to kill us. How did all of this seem to Moses? How did all of this seem to Moses? Did he remain full of joyous, hopeful faith in the midst of great adversity? Yes and no. Verses 22 and 23 then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So certainly we see the spiritual disorientation and doubt. In Moses' eyes, God's redemptive work looked more like evil. And surely we would have had a similar perspective. Life had become much harder for the Israelites and God had not delivered his people at all, at least in the time frame that Moses had been expecting. But at the same time, there are hints of trust. There are hints of trust. In the midst of his distress, he still managed to cry out to the Lord. The Hebrew behind these verses shows us that his cries to the Lord were specifically addressed to the Lord, his master, So there is some trust. EBF, when God works redemptively, two things are often true from our perspective. God's redemptive plan unfolds far more slowly than we think it should. And God's redemptive work is far more painful than we think it needs to be. Why? Because oppression runs so deep. Why? Because the idolatry that causes oppression is deep and horrifying far more than we realize. Here's the thing about idolatry. It's not a surface wound. It's more like a heart disease in that it involves, to refer to Augustine and more recently, James K.A. Smith, it involves disordered loves. It involves loving things more than the God who is love and should be the preeminent object of our love. And you don't fix heart disease by taking a couple of aspirin. A far more invasive procedure is in order, which means things will get worse before they get better, which means that the recovery is going to take a minute. And you know, that's not the fault of the surgeon. That's the nature of the disease the surgeon is addressing. Did you notice the depth of the idolatry in this passage? Pharaoh was explicitly 
exalting himself above the Lord and also suppressing attempts by others to worship the one true God. That's about as bad as it gets. He was in it deep. So you can see why it is that a little knock on the door and a speech from Moses and Aaron wasn't really going to move the needle. In fact, it drove him deeper into his idolatry. He tightened his grip on his idolatrous power and ratcheted up the oppression. So their visit to Pharaoh was a necessary part of the process, but it was just one step and a long process. Clearly God was going to have to really shake things up in order to overcome the oppression that Pharaoh was perpetuating at the expense of the Israelites. So how do we endure when God's redemptive work seems too long and too painful? How do we keep going? Three exhortations. Number one, let's press into the character and promises of God. Let's press into the character and promises of God. Earlier I mentioned that Exodus chapters 3 through 4 include timely references to the character of the God who redeems. Here's why all of that is so timely. Our endurance in the midst of great trials is a function of our confidence in God's character and trust in His promises regardless of the circumstances. Mike Wilkerson puts it like this in his book, Redemption. His faith is about evidence. If our primary evidence that God is at work is based on our circumstances, then our faith is strained when we are blindsided by circumstances that fail to meet our expectations. It's all about weighing the evidence. We weigh the evidence of God's character, promises, and track record against the present circumstances we face and our fears of what might happen. The question is, are we a church of people who regularly reflect on God's character and his promises? Do we remind one another of these things? Last few months have been complicated and hard for myself and my family, not uh, coincidentally because we have a four-month-old and that's just hard. So I was on the phone with a close friend and this friend who loves Jesus very much, at one point He just kind of stopped the conversation and he quoted scripture and he reminded me of the peace that God gives us right there on the phone. And I cannot fully describe how powerful and encouraging and nourishing that was for me spiritually. Lord, would you make this part of our natural conversation? More than than sports and and fashion and celebrity news and politics and so forth, might this be sort sort of natural and organic in this church body? Exhortation number two, let's cry out to God with honest prayers. Moses' conversation with God in verses 22, excuse me, 32 and 33 should expand our view of what prayer can be. When redemption seems too long and too painful, keep talking to God anyway and and tell Him what you really think. You can even copy Moses if you want. Hey God, I'm trying to trust you here, but honestly this redemption you're supposed to be accomplishing looks more like evil. I don't really think you're delivering us. 
That may not sound very much like the kind of proper prayer you think good church people should be praying. It's completely legitimate to pray this to God. And here's the thing. It's far better than not saying anything. Keep talking to God. Exhortation number three. To be honest about the insidiousness of idolatry and the depth of the oppression it causes. We all wrestle with idolatry, with disordered loves and worship. So we can expect to experience some oppression from others because of their idolatry, and we will oppress ourselves, and we will oppress others as well. And the severity of this idolatry and oppression means that redemption isn't going to be an easy fix. Idols generally die kind of violently, and it takes a long time. Perhaps the most graphic illustration of this is the journey out of addictions, the withdrawals are often terrifying and painful. It feels like you're going in the wrong direction, but it's actually part of the redemption. Redemption is hard because oppression and idolatry are deep. Here's some really good news. It brings us to our second reflection. Redemption is hard because redemption is great. The redemptive work that God is doing is very great. As you can see at the beginning of chapter 6, God's response to Moses' distress is very much in line with what we just discussed. God does not respond by pulling back the curtain and giving Moses a bunch of whys. He doesn't start getting all philosophical on him in a way that explain uh, the specifics of the events that have just unfolded. Instead, once again, God responds to Moses' grievances by giving Moses reminders about God's identity and character and presence. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not speak, I, excuse me, I did not make myself known to them. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Verse 7, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, I am the Lord. And if you go to verse 29, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. And God also gives Moses a reminder that because God is still good, the redemptive plan is still intact, and in due course, Moses is going to be rather impressed. Chapter 6, verse 1, again, this is right after Moses' outcry to the Lord after his complaint. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. It's not reflected very well in this translation, but the he who is driving the Israelites out of Egypt with a strong hand is actually a reference to the Lord, not to Pharaoh. References in Scripture to God's strong hand or, or outstretched arm, verse 6, have to do with his power and his sovereignty. So God is telling Moses, I know the process seems terrible to you right now, but when we get to peak redemption, it's going to be epic. You think the burning bush was something? Wait until I pull out all the stops to drive out your people. I won't just pull out all the stops. I'm going to press all the keys on the organ at the same time. It's going to blow your socks off. 
There will be great acts of judgment into verse 6, continuing into verse 7. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And trust me, at that point, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Remember verse 8, you'll be headed to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. In other words, the oppression you're experiencing right now is heavy, and it seems to be getting much worse. But in the end, the redemption I'm accomplishing for you will be worth it. The intensity of the redemption is far greater than the intensity of the pain you're experiencing along the way. But here's the thing. The difficulties we experience as God does his redemptive work won't just be outweighed by the glory of the redemption that is to come. The difficulties end up also being signposts along the way that the redemptive work God is doing is very great. And don't we know this somewhat intuitively? Great accomplishments are almost always accompanied by difficult journeys. I mean, when you watch the Olympics... These days, you don't really end up watching sports anymore. You end up mainly watching human interest stories about the athletes. You get two minutes of sports, 58 minutes of commercials, and human interest stories. And these human interest stories are always about difficulties or about failure and and injuries and helicopter parents and working three jobs to pay rent while you train. You watch enough of these stories and eventually you realize that these difficult journeys aren't exceptions. They're the norm. It's costly to train your body to to the point that you can perform at an Olympic level. In fact, if you're training to be an Olympic athlete and you encounter some bumps in the road, you're probably on the right track. An easy journey would in many ways be more concerning. Great redemptive act are very difficult because the oppression runs so deep. So there is always much work to be done to peel back the oppressive layers, and the peeling is often very painful. But understand that along the way, this peeling is usually a sign that God is doing some powerful, redemptive work, even though it might feel like the opposite is true. The difficulties are a sign that God is up to some five-star redemption, not some kind of two-star stuff. It's painful, but your pain is not a waste. And so when God's redemptive work seems to be far too slow, when it seems to be unfruitful, be very encouraged. It's not a problem with God. It's a problem with our expectations. We went fast, We want smooth. We want painless. But that's not how redemption works. It's typically slow, bumpy, and painful. But it's all of those things because God is doing deep work that culminates in redemption that is far grander than we imagine. Wasn't this the case with the Israelites? God wasn't helping them get through a long security line at the airport. He was contending with an overwhelmingly obstinate pharaoh 
with unchecked power, who had no problem announcing to Moses and Aaron back in chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. And God wasn't orchestrating a way for just a few people to leave. He was orchestrating a way for an entire nation of people to get out of Egypt, even though the powers that be understood that the Israelite nation had become economically indispensable. And God was also dealing with uncertainty and even some complaining among the Israelites about the redemptive plan, even though the other option was, of course, staying in terrifying slavery. That's some deep work. That's some deep work that's clearly going to involve a few bumps along the way. But the redemption was to be greater than they expected as well. He wasn't just removing the Egyptian shackles. He was taking them into something so marvelous it was hard to put it into words. A land flowing with milk and honey. All of this was the case with the Israelites, but it's the case with us as well when God does his redemptive work in us and through us and around us. The redemptive work is going to be more painful than we want it to be. That's because the work he's doing is grander and more impressive than we realize. He's not helping us overcome a long line at the airport, as convenient as that would be. He's pulling us out of addictions. He's exposing people and things in our lives that have become more important than God himself. He's healing us from wounds caused by various kinds of abuse. And more importantly, he's remaking you spiritually, you being those who have thrown all of their hope unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That's some really deep work. But the end result seemed to some degree on this earth, but not fully experienced until we're with God and in the final promised land. That end result is greater than we think it is. So great that it's hard to put it into words. And here's another beautiful thing about difficulties encountered in redemptive journeys. The difficulties accentuate the full glory of the freedom that's ultimately gained. This is why they show the human interest stories. Because when the athletes succeed, when they succeed, it's especially beautiful to watch because now you know the journey. Now you know what it costs them to get there. Now that, that little tear tries to force its way down your cheek as you watch the athletes hug their families, kiss the ground, or whatever. And so it is for God's people as we experience the fullness of the redemptive work God is doing in us. Difficulties will compound the glory of any earthly measure of redemption we experience but they will certainly compound the glory of the full measure of redemption we'll experience with God in eternity when we're living in the new city that he's preparing for us. I haven't done empirical studies to prove this. Maybe I should. But I think the most common reason that people abandon their faith, abandon their walks with God, has everything to do with unmet expectations about the redemptive work God is doing in their lives. It's too slow, it's too bumpy, it's too painful. I think that's number one. 
So I hope our, our time this morning has been so encouraging, especially to those of you who are perhaps thinking about throwing in the towel. And as we close, I'll leave you with one more thing. Let's remember that we're walking with a God who not only has worked and continues to work redemptively, he knows a thing or two about redemptive journeys that are more painful than you think they should be. And he knows a thing or two about redemptive journeys that are so painful that they seem to be going in the wrong direction, and he knows it because Jesus lived it. He lived it. His earthly ministry was full of various highs and lows. He experienced heavy pushback from the religious elite and other power brokers in Roman society. He prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane for another way to accomplish the redemptive plan because he saw that the plan was going to be so painful for him. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was an an incredibly difficult, painful road. And especially in the eyes of his disciples, none of this looked remotely redemptive. In fact, when Jesus was arrested and, and tortured and ultimately crucified, they were running away. They were running away. They were throwing in the towel because they thought this is too painful, it's taking too long, nothing is happening, so we're out of here. They were completely disoriented and doubtful. But it was actually far more redemptive than they knew. Far, far more. They were thinking in large part about some sort of you know, geopolitical revolution, and that would have been helpful for them, sure. But Jesus was doing something that was simultaneously much harder and more wonderful. He was giving people freedom from the bondage of idolatry so that they could be slaves of Christ, part of the family of God, adopted sons and daughters and heirs. So as you walk in the midst of a journey that seems to be too hard and too painful, understand that God is very much at work. Trust in His character, trust in His promises. Remember that the redemptive work that God is doing It's always more wonderful than we think it is, not less. And remember that he knows what you're going through along the way. And I'll close by saying, I just mentioned spiritual adoption. That is the number one lesson I wish I had really learned a long time ago. That the past seven or eight years of ministry have taught me really well. Enjoy and savor this the status that you have as God's people, as his sons and daughters, as his heirs. Savor it, cherish it, read passages about it. Remind one another of it regularly. Let's pray together. Lord, we understand that you are indeed at work in ways that are more wonderful than we, than we realize. A lot of it we just, we, we know intellectually about it, but we just can't see it. And so I pray that in the midst of the painful parts, the parts that, 
seem to be way too bumpy, way too long. Pray, Father, by your grace that you would indeed help us to trust in your character and your promises. I pray that you would give us rhythms as a church family that involve reminding one another of sweet promises that you have given us in your word, including promises about our status as your beloved children, heirs to a promised land that is, that is so beyond our understanding, it's hardly even worth talking about on some levels. Give us great joy as we wait and groan and long. We praise you that joy can coexist in the midst of our pain and of our suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.